I saw that there was more opportunity and I saw that there was ways to help other people out and not necessarily actually be in the shop. So it's kind of my way of being able to stay in the industry after getting kicked out of a shop. Welcome to Diesel Stories, where we sit down with professionals across the industry to hear about their journey. I'm Jacob Finlay, along with Chris O'Brien. Today, we're talking with Jay Goninen, founder and president at Find a Wrench and co-founder and president at Wrenchway, whose mission is to improve the automotive and diesel industries and help address the technician shortage. All right, welcome, Jay. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, guys. Uh, really excited to join you. So, Jay, tell us, um, tell us about your background. Where are you from? I'm from a very, very small town in Wisconsin, uh, kind of about, uh, for those familiar with Wisconsin, about uh, an hour away from Madison. And uh, and so grew up in a in that really, really small town in my dad's independent repair shop. Uh, he worked on cars since I was a, a, a really, really young kid and opened up uh, his first shop. Uh, it was his only shop when uh, when I was about nine years old. So I uh, I was introduced to the industry at a really young age, and and uh, I think that's kind of why I'm so uh, so passionate about this topic and and all of the topics in the industry because it's it's just fun to talk about. So did your dad work for a shop before you opened it? Yeah, so he actually he went through a, a phase where he's working in a few different areas. But he he when I was a really really young kid, he was a, a police officer actually, um, and then he went out. Uh, he grew up on a farm, so he was just mechanically inclined uh, growing up, and so he went to go work in a shop, and that that individual opened a second location in our hometown. Uh, after a couple years, decided that he didn't like having a second location. And so he basically uh, let my dad take it over. So it, it was he was working there managing that that store, that shop uh, for a couple years prior to just taking it over. And then that was really his first foray into business. And I think it was such an eye opener uh, to him in terms of how different it is from going from working on, in our case, cars uh, to the business side of it. Right. And Mm -hmm. that always resonates with me on, on that, maybe that shift and that level of change. And we don't have all, or we didn't have all the resources that you have now with the internet and with, um, you know, software like you guys have, right. It's just, there's so many advantages right now uh, that we didn't have back then. And, you know, everything from learning about insurance and workers' comp insurance and uh, scheduling and how to run a business with really no money was mm-hmm. was how we how we did it. And that's, you know, a lot of how I got exposure at such a young age. We couldn't afford to bring on extra people. So it resulted in me uh, answering phones, scheduling appointments, uh, even doing some of the accounting or light accounting of filling out deposit slips and and. Uh, some of that other stuff. So I got uh, kind of thrown into the fire uh, as a really, really young person. And some of that, I, I, you know, I really attribute some of the success that we've had now to kind of getting thrown into the fire so early uh, in in my childhood. I I just, uh, I loved it. I loved growing up that way. I thought it was just the the best way to grow up was in a business. So your dad was just figuring out how to run a business when he took over the shop. Yeah. And it took him quite a few years. Right. And I think he would even admit that part of you go from being focused on the one thing in your bay that you can fix 
uh, to going to dealing with customers and dealing with, you know, the front end of the business and making sure you've got enough cash and making sure that you're, you know, just general business stuff that I don't know you really get a full grasp of until you're in charge, right? And I, I use my experience for that. When I started Finder Wrench, uh, I, you know, I had run a payroll, uh, not a payroll, a, a budget for a multi-location uh, ag equipment dealership. And it's different running your own budget versus running the budget of somebody else, right? And I don't think I could have even expected or understood the differences prior to actually making that crossover. It, it's a it's a huge difference when uh, when you're managing cash flow rather than just a budget. So if, if I could, let me just go back a little bit. So, you're, so your dad was a police officer and then maybe did some other jobs, but then basically went right into running the shop, never had run a business before he became an owner. Right. Yes. So you remember, was it a stressful time? You mentioned there's not a lot of money, like you just had to figure out a way to make it work, right? Yeah, I don't know that I would call it as stressful. Obviously, on me, it wasn't nearly as stressful. I was having a blast. I remember uh, them telling my parents telling us that, hey, you know what, we're, we're going to buy the shop. And I was just ecstatic about it. I just I absolutely loved it. Uh, for my dad, it was more of he didn't have other help in the shop. So he was working, you know, 16 hour days trying to to stay caught up. And that leaves so little time for, you know, the book work and the, the back end stuff that, you know, you don't understand until you're fully engulfed in it. Like this is, this is a lot of work. And uh, unless you're putting and especially as a single man shop, as he started, unless you're putting out that work, you're not getting paid anything. And, and so that's, that's a really, really tough thing to grasp. And then the other piece to that was you start, accumulating bills and you, you start accumulating invoices to customers that maybe aren't getting paid and and you might do favors for your buddies that could really, really hurt you in the long run. Mm. Um, and th- I think he found himself in that, that predicament where it really was just coming to an understanding that while you do want to help everybody out, you can't do it for free or you're going to go broke. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and that can be hard sometimes because you want to be, you want to be a nice guy, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I, I know the, the relationship that you two have is similar to the, the relationship that my business partner and I have, where my business partner is a CPA and very business it focused, very uh, focused on process. And, and I'm far more of like the, I, I want to talk to everybody and really uh, kind of enjoy, enjoy my day. And it, it's, the right balance. And, and I noticed when I first started Finder Wrench, I didn't start it with him. I, I brought him on later. Um, and then we started Wrenchway and all that. But it, it was such a uh, an eye-opening piece to me of seeing how impactful and how important it was to have that partner that that really high, like he, he, he could do all the things that I didn't like to do and he could do them really, really well. And he'd like to do them. And that's not a, that's not an opportunity that my dad had right off the bat. And it was, it was really, really tough on him. Mm. 16 hour days. Yeah. That's tough. So I, so that was your first job in commercial repair, basically. Yeah. Working yeah. for your dad. I, uh, well, it, it's funny because I, after I worked in the office for a while, I just always saw, you know, my dad was growing. We ended up moving to a, a new and bigger shop that he's actually still in to this day. And uh, I always clamored to go into the shop and, and work. You know, I, that's what all of my idols did were, you know, they were techs. And 
And so uh, when I got old enough, I started doing some of the simple stuff, changing tires, doing alignments, doing, you know, the, the, the maintenance type stuff, maybe a little bit of light diagnostic work, but not a lot. Uh, and then I was going to an apprenticeship program throughout high school, uh, did really well there, went off to trade school. And just, I never even thought there was anything else, right? I, I just, in my mind was like, this is, this is the only thing I know. I'm going to work on cars. That's it. And the, the funny part about my story is when I came back, I got a really rude awakening to real life and, and to the fact that I wasn't a good tech. And it wasn't, you know, I was young. I was probably 19, 20 years old coming back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had done well in school and, and you'd done all, you know, checked all the boxes. But when I got back and they started throwing some real diagnostic work at me and they started throwing some other things, it was overwhelming right off the bat. And mm-hmm. I was having some some uh, physical issues as well. Uh, but really, I, I always kind of joke around and say that was the industry's way of one, humbling me and then two, kicking me out of a shop. So mm-hmm. that's <laughs> that's kind of how how everything worked. Yeah. Is that what, were you gone? So we've seen some folks where they have just grown up in a shop, they never leave and they just become master mechanics or techs. But if you go away for a little bit and you try to come back in, there's, there's just some tribal knowledge that's learned along the way that uh, senior or, you know, mechanics have been doing it for 20, 30 years. Just, they just know it. And to this day, it's in some cases it prevails, right? Um, Is that, is that the absence that was there or was it just the culture had changed after you were gone? No, I, I think. Was your dad so, just nice to you before you left and <laughs> threw you to the wolves after? There was a little bit of that, uh, but there was there was a little bit of just immaturity on my end. Right. And, and I look back to it and I think I see it in a lot of tech students now where you think you're better than what you are. And so when you go back and you have to eat that slice of humble pie that you're not as good as you thought you were, <laughs> it, it really is a, it's a humbling experience to go through. And, and I see it all the time still in other technicians. And I, and this is where I stress, I, it really does come from the heart when it, when I talk about, how a manager should handle a tech and especially a new tech and manage expectations because just because they went to trade school doesn't mean they're going to come back and know everything, right? In fact, they're they're probably going to know very little. And so having a program in place to nurture them and, and know that they're not going to be high production people right off the bat. Now, I will say I've seen, I've, I've actually employed uh, some for myself, techs that are coming out of school and just rock stars. It's that's the exception to the rule, though. And I think everybody thinks that's, you know, that's the rule that if you're paying them, they should come in and produce right away, especially as wages start to go up. So that was, uh, you know, that was a, a big eye opening moment for me. Um, I, I it was the time where I had to start looking and say, OK, I I need. I love this industry. I just don't know how to be a part of it in our small little town. So uh, that's. I end up moving to Madison, uh, and that was actually where I got into the diesel business. I didn't grow up with diesel, and uh, and that was my kind of, um, I guess, evolution into the diesel business. And it uh, it was maybe one of the best things that ever happened to me. 
You know, it's interesting. Um, I, so I grew up in the shop. Um, I can't remember. I think it was 14 years old, and they taught me how to paint tires. And so I was the tire <laughs> painter. <laughs> so, um, and then they, I was the groover. I was pretty good at grooving. But eventually, I, I followed a path similar to you where I could do front-end alignments. We were changing tires. I could do some front-end work. And I was so proud I got this car, um, and I was did the water pump, put a new distributor in. I was going to show my dad, 30-year mechanic, and um, I put the distributor in 180 backwards, had uh, overheating issues because there was an air pocket in there. I, quite, I didn't quite figure out all the details, <laughs> but my dad came out, uh, fixed it very quick and took out a matchbook. He's like, son, we need a matchbook. So I had to scramble and get a matchbook. I said, what are we going to do? He's gonna, he goes, we're going to get this thing to bump start. It was an old Ford. He goes, we'll get this thing with a matchbook. We'll set these points up. And I'll show you what us old timers do. And sure enough, with a matchbook, we bump started that car. And I, if you had a Ford, you could come to my house and we could just set up. <laughs> oh, awesome. I love those stories, though, right? Like that's the stuff where I, I just idolize people with mechanical ability uh, because I lack it, right? And I think that's that's something that gives me perspective in that I got my butt kicked by it. And yeah. it, it gives me just a whole different level of of respect to th- those that can do it. Yeah, definitely. So, so Jay, you, uh, remind me. So you, you come back from trade school back to your dad's shop and you yeah. basically get kicked out of the shop. Yes. And then, um, remind me what happens. So you, you get to Madison and finally get into commercial repair after that. Well, so this is funny. I went to go work for a company called diesel injection service, which is now diesel forward, uh, still very, very close with all of these people. Really, really great people. We know those guys. But the, yeah. Yeah, the funny part was I I saw an ad in the paper, and this is back when you looked for a job in the paper, right? So I looked in the state journal. I knew I was going to be working or like moving to Madison, and I saw a an ad for a customer service rep, and basically they're saying, if if you come here, we'll teach you how to talk about diesel parts and sell them, and you know all of that, and in the back of my mind, I'm like, I didn't even know this stuff existed. I didn't know you could go talk to people on the phone about parts. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. So I went and applied, got the job. And even with that job, I think I I kind of went in with my tail between my legs as that failed technician, right? As Mm -hmm. going into it. And I'm like, "Uh, yeah, it didn't work out. I was one of the failures (laughs) out of school. And, and, uh, And it took me a few months to really kind of find my my comfort zone. And it really came when somebody said, Hey, you know what? I see you out interacting with your friends and, uh, just be that person. Don't try to be like that perfect professional, uh, you know, by the book person it kind of be yourself. And, and when you start talking to people, um, just kind of talk to them, have fun with it. And that, that was like a light bulb moment for me where it went from like, this is a grind every day to go into work to really that's right in my, that's right in my comfort zone. That's right in my wheelhouse. And I just love talking to people and, and learning things about people. And, and that was really kind of where it, it just clicked for me. And, and really I saw that there was more opportunity and I saw that there was uh, ways to help other people out, but and not necessarily actually be in the shop. So it's kind of my way of being able to stay in the industry while, uh, you know, after getting kicked out of a shop. Mm, nice. So how long were you there at diesel injection? Uh, I think I was there for like two and a half years and, and, um, 
the funny part about that was one, I just cannot say enough about those guys. Uh, still to this day, some of my, my really, really good friends are from there. And, uh, I had actually left because I wanted to get into sales. So uh, it's one of those things, again, where it's life lessons where you, you're you like, oh, I'm really good at this. I'm going to go on to the next thing. I'm not going to wait. And so I went to the next thing, which was uh, as a sales coordinator for a semi-trailer repair, or I'm sorry, a semi-trailer dealership. So it was a utility trailer dealership mm, nice. and learned a lot there as well. Uh, that was a pretty brief stop, only a couple of years. And during that couple of years, I'm like, you know what? I I knew it like almost immediately. I'm like this, I, I don't mind the sales side. I really miss the service side. Like, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's, I think it's ingrained in you from when you're a kid that <laughs> you're going to be on that service side. So, um, I actually ended up going out and, uh, uh, applying to somebody had actually referred me to, to apply, but, uh, re- went to go work for Bobcat company for about uh, five and a half years and, uh, and was a, a district service manager. So kind of a territory rep. And uh, uh, among uh, across the Midwest, I guess uh, parts of Wisconsin and Michigan and Illinois and Minnesota. Uh, but uh, again, another absolutely great company to work for was you know learned so much about the business side through that. Uh, learned a lot about the warranty side. Learned a lot about mm-hmm. you know just maybe some of the struggles that ownership sees and the struggles that uh, management sees. But then oh, overwhelmingly, I. St- saw that there was the same issue that I'd seen my entire career, which was that nobody could find technicians, right? And that was from when I was a kid all the way up till now. And it wasn't, it, it was getting really, really bad. Um, so what year was, what uh, year was this about? So I left, I, I went to go work for Bobcat. Well, this is funny. I, I went to go work for Bobcat in 2008, which if you remember 2008, probably wasn't the greatest time. Totally to remember. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't the greatest time to go join an equipment uh, manufacturer uh, because of all of the large scale cutbacks. Yeah, but I was I was fortunate enough to make it through all of that. Ended up uh, after about five and a half years there. One of the dealerships that I was a rep for um, was a large John Deere dealership uh, and Bobcat, obviously, because I was a rep for him. And they uh, they kind of recruited me over to go run their parts and service department. So it was a seven store, uh, do I'm sorry, seven store John Deere and Bobcat dealership, and I I was the uh, corporate aftermarket manager, kind of that director uh, level hmm. uh, aftermarket manager for those guys. So I did that for about three and a half years, and then that's when I started Finder Edge. So when you're when you're at Bobcat, you're being it's a regional service manager. Are you directly overseeing technicians? in that role or what was that? You're essentially kind of the intermediate or you're the, the, the person between the factory and the dealership, right? So the, the dealerships are all independently owned. Um, and really our job was to go in and it, it, it was evolving. The role itself was evolving while I was there. It used to be kind of that role where that, the service the you know, the best service person would go into the dealership when nobody else could fix the problem and they would help them diagnose and fix the problem. We got tons of training on that. So actually my, my technical skills skyrocketed at that point. I, I actually got pretty good at that side, but then 
it, it evolved into more of the managing the business or helping them manage their service business and and you know making sure that they're doing all of their warranties and and some of the you know the auditing and and making sure that they're doing the warranty work right um, and all the way I mean it, it was a pretty broad uh, pretty broad role but I was you know in I think I had about forty dealerships that I was a, a their, their rep for. And, uh, and so you learn a lot about that and you learn a lot about how different those dealerships are, right. And how different management styles are and different shops are. Uh, and so, yeah, that was, uh, that, that was definitely, uh, an interesting role. You know, with, uh, the warranty experience, um, just having dealt with some of it myself, um, what do you see that, um, is it critical for even on, in, in the Bobcat area to keep up on preventative maintenance, uh, to prevent warranty failures or to prevent warranty claims? Did you really learn any portion of that business? I I learned a ton about that. And it, again, another kind of light bulb moment for me was uh, Bobcat did a great job at training, right? So you, you went through a little bit of training in a whole bunch of different departments. One of those departments was the warranty department. And I was able to sit with their, um, their warranty kind of uh, collection, or I shouldn't even say collection, but the, what they get paid back from the manufacturers of the components that go into the skid steer, right? So Mm -hmm. They have a drive motor. They have something that's coming from uh, a different manufacturer. They pay warranty out to the dealership, and then they're trying to get that warranty reimbursed back from the manufacturer. And so seeing that whole process go through and and really seeing that they're not just making techs or or shops fill out all this information just for the, the heck of it. Like they're they're really they're trying to put their own story together to get repayment on that. And I, you know, I, I think a, one that I used to drive people nuts, but it was really a good example was on uh, skid steer, or I'm sorry, track machine tracks. Uh, that I think like Bridgestone or somebody was the, the manufacturer of those. And it was really, really hard for a manufacturer to get a payment back from them uh, without showing some type of abuse. So, you know, I, I think then the, you, you'd end up with an upset customer because they're like, well, you, they didn't pay for it. And, and really, as a manufacturer, you kind of get stuck in the middle, which is a weird thing to say. But uh, to answer your question, too, on the, the preventative maintenance side, it was so critical, so critical. And, and not only just for the general, like taking care of your machine, but when you did have a warranty issue and you could back it up with, uh, with data or with, you know, with information that you took care of your machine and you didn't abuse it, you know, you're going to get your warranty paid for pretty easily. If you didn't have that information or there was something glaringly wrong about what you were doing, you're most likely getting it denied, whether you're in warranty, you know, it, you, when you're in warranty and, uh, and that causes a whole lot of friction. So, and I, I don't know. I'm sure you guys could attest to this too, but you could definitely tell the customers that did regular maintenance and the mm-hmm. customers that didn't, didn't do regular, yeah, regular maintenance. It actually matters, doesn't it? Oh, it yeah. does. I've, I've even seen it just at even uh, dealerships. So my brother's a big warranty guy. He loves warranties, extended warranties, but he's also a great at maintenance. One thing that he's just picked up just from being in the trucking industry or just um, being around me working in man- fleet management, et cetera, He's just committed to always staying up on maintenance. And interesting enough, anytime he has a major failure, the dealer always comes forward for him. 
whatever brand it is, they come forward because he's just on top of his maintenance and they just yeah. cover it. Um, so it's kind of interesting that uh, I see it in, you know, in the light duty area, but I, I, it sounds like it's, it's across all industries because you, you've covered diesel, you've covered trailer work. I imagine it cascades through all of the industries. It does. Yeah. And, and we would take those customers that would buy extended warranty more, I shouldn't say more seriously, but if, if there was something that might be a little bit on the fringe, but they bought that extended warranty, you were more than likely going to pay for it because it was a way of rewarding them for being proactive and doing the right thing. Uh, and so it, it uh, uh, in those gray area opportunities, if you will, on, on the warranty side, you're going to probably side with that person that does take it seriously, like your brother from the start, you know, where they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. Hey, Jay, you hear a lot about how the culture has changed over the last maybe 20, 25 years in the industry. Is that something you've seen too? Yeah, uh, a lot. And I think it goes from everything, like everything, right? Technology's evolved so much, but just the general I think culture now, I, I will say, I think we still have a long way to go. Right. But the, when we talk about the culture in a shop, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, when you go into a shop, you need thick skin. Uh, you're, you're probably going to get ribbed about something. You're probably, you know, going to hear some colorful language in a lot of shops. Uh, there's a lot of things where it can be really intimidating for a new technician coming in. I do think we're getting better and, and really, uh, hopefully getting a little bit more culturally sound when it comes to that. Uh, there are still a lot of opportunities for us to, to clean that up. I, I think in some ways we've changed drastically. In some ways we're exactly the same. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I think back in March we talked about how, you know, it used to be okay for the owner to throw a chair to make a point and not so much anymore. Yeah. Well, that's probably even back in the day, way back in the 80s, uh, you didn't do that either. But there was usually an old guy or grandma that was there and they could get away with it. <laughs> you didn't mess <laughs> right. with the old man in the corner that was just sitting there. Um, but we've seen we've seen it still uh, to this day where you'll get shop managers that, you know, they've they've kind of been that way their entire lives. They, you know, maybe have a short fuse. And it could be with customers, it could be with a, a technician, whoever it is. But if they feel like they can't land their point home without yelling, they just continue to yell. And uh, just being upfront and honest, those are the ones that have problems with turnover in their shops. You know, that's that when you create that volatile experience or that volatile uh work environment, it makes it really, really hard on your people and stressful on your people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You wonder why techs leave. And then you act like that. I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. yeah. When I, when I regrouped a 10 hundred R20 or a 10 hundred 20, their buys probably back there, but I'd put five lines in there because the old man wanted five, not four lines. <laughs> so I did it anyway. But hey, shifting gears here, what are your thoughts on, you know, so the industry is changing. We've got this thing right to repair. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? So this is a little bit of a unique, I, I, I think I come from a unique perspective with the right to repair. With your dealer background, act. right? Well, it's a little bit of both, right? Because I've, I grew up in an independent shop. I've had dealer experience, manufacturer experience, and we at Finder Wrench cater to them all, right? And, mm -hmm. and both Wrenchway and Finder Wrench are meant to really not be uh, divisive between the two. So I get kind of stuck in the middle on the whole right to repair act, you know, where I get both sides and I understand why they want that. Now I do 
probably lean a little bit more to the independence on this side um, and, and really the customer's rights to be able to have their data or ha- allow other people other than the manufacturer to have their data, just because I don't think creating a monopoly is going to solve anything, right? Or, you know, I, I think maybe that's the perceived side. Um, but to me, uh, it, it is a little bit of internal conflict on which way to go with this, right? Because I'm kind of damned if I do, damned if I don't, right? And and uh, and I I get it. Like, I get why this is such a hot topic. Um, but yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. It's one that I stay very on top of because I think it's going to have a, a big impact one way or the other on the industry. Uh, but it is, uh, it, it drives a lot of conflict. Yeah. I always wonder, cause you know, some of these engines, you know, we've, we've got engines that are not just $10,000 anymore or not even the 20, you're starting to get into the forties, the fifties, yeah. some of this equipment's getting pretty expensive depending if you're on, you know, yellow iron or if you're just sticking on highway, but if you lose uh, control of that warranty period, the repair cycle, they're not certified dealers, um, et cetera, certified mechanics to repair that type of equipment. Is that what they're really trying to do is control that for warranty dollars? Or is it really um, just to lock it up so they can have all the repairs? Do, do you perceive it as more warranty related and in, from claims? or is it- I think it's Personally, I think it's more for the getting the repairs and the data, right? And I noticed that when I was on the John Deere side, that data was as valuable to them as anything, and that they use that data for you know predictive analysis, uh, for you know being able to see how somebody's using a machine, uh, and really. It, it is crazy what that data means to them and not only them, but every manufacturer. Right. And you're seeing it with with how the car or how the truck or how the machine is talking back and forth with whatever central program that the manufacturer has. And that I, I was honestly a little bit confused uh, when I first started off at the, the deer dealership because they wanted so much information from what they were doing in the fields. Uh, they wanted, you know, some information on, uh, you know, how they're laying out, a, how they're laying out a field, the yields that they're getting from that, you know, if it's mm-hmm. corn or soybeans or whatever it is, but that data was just vitally important to them. And I think it's the same way with that service business. And, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, I, I, obviously the service business is very important to them, right? There's, it's a high margin business that, um, as maybe some of the trucks or whatever get more commoditized, a lot of a lot of the commonality between them. The one thing that sets them apart is maybe their their dealership network. And if the if you've got a group of independents that are kind of kicking their butt on on that market share side, uh, they're they're going to take that seriously, right? That's a that's a tough business to lose out on if you if you're not on top of it. Well, in the aftermarket, I think more and more is uh, important to the dealers. They see they see the value there. It's kind of a it's kind of a symbiotic thing though, because they sell a lot of aftermarket parts to the independents. Um, yet at the same time, they're competing on the service side. So, I, hey Jay, I wanted to before we get into you know why you started uh, Finer Wrench um, when you're working for Bobcat. Was it in 2008 where you went to where you went to Bobcat? Yeah, kind of yep. over the Midwest region. You got any crazy stories of what happened then? Or was it pretty much just, you know, going to work, <laughs> steady Eddie, nothing, nothing really happened? Or uh, what, what can you tell us? Can you share us any, any interesting anecdotes about what happened? 
It was nuts. Uh, being a field rep, you're not in an office. Uh, me being fairly new, I think this happened in 2009, actually, but they, they did end up having kind of a mass layoff, right, as a result of business just uh, taking a dive. And there was one day where it all happened, and actually my boss got let go. Uh, and I didn't know it. Nobody knew who was getting let go or you know what was happening. So it was one of the most eerie feelings I've ever had in my life where you're calling around to all your friends and you're saying, hey, do you still have a job? Yeah, I, I do. Do you? And, and you're, you're calling around to everybody. And there ended up being you know quite a few people that I knew uh, that didn't make it. And it is it's gut-wrenching because at the time, and it's similar to, you know, we're going through a pandemic right now and you don't know what the end is. Uh, I think there was a lot of concern for that when I was there, right? Because you didn't know, you know, going through that housing crisis, what is the end? What is, you know, how do we end up after this? And and so for the folks that were unfortunate enough to lose their their jobs, you know, just the general worry of where do they end up at? You know, I, that that day will... I'll for, I'll never forget that day in my life because it was just such a such a weird day, such a stressful day, and um, and one that I think everybody knew was coming, but just didn't you know? It, it just a it's a it's a really really hard thing to go through. Yeah, yeah, that's tough. Uh, Chris, what were you doing during two thousand eight? You were at uh, Shamrock Foods You're managing Shamrock. the fleet. We yeah. were we were rubbing pennies together to see if more change would come out of it. <laughs> We literally, so, you know, like the food, so hospitals, food, you know, we're in the supply chain, but, you know, a lot of folks were getting decimated, right? So people weren't going out to eat and whatnot. That fuel prices were, you know, we still had fuel issues. People had done forward buys. So we were always optimizing. Everything was about expense, 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 but, um, and also preventative maintenance because service became super critical. If you... You guys weren't buying a bunch of new equipment. We still, you know, we were still, we, we had our cycle. We believed in preventative maintenance and getting rid of equipment. So we, we ran a lot of in-town trucks and, uh, and we cycled things through. But the equipment has a life cycle, regardless of what's happening with the economy. And if you keep it too long, you're just inherently going to start having problems, right? So for, for us, we yeah. had our recipe, but we would extend out one, you know, we'd extend out a year, but we would do that for other reasons, not necessarily 2008. Most of it was around fuel optimization. Um, and then optimizing labor because you're just coming right off of a driver shortage. You're not really worried about drivers because, you know, as the economy is dipping down, you're you're just not having to replace them. Right. You're not having to go through mass layoffs or anything like that. But um, it was mostly about operating fixed, fixed overhead, capacity planning, uh, supply, a lot of supply chain. We built out a fairly elaborate um, backhaul program generating several million dollars in new revenue for the company uh kind of becoming a for hire motor carrier not necessarily our own products more so than for hire so because you can shelter that money inside of the freight uh, allowance on goods and so you still are allowed to shelter that money um but and bring it to the bottom line you guys got really creative Absolutely. Jay, did you guys see anything like that? I know you were brand new to the industry, but um, yeah. I mean, it, from the time you started to the time you left, because you left from there, did you leave straight from there to start Find a Wrench from Bobcat? No. So I had, you the went to Deere, John Deere, right? You have the Deere dealership in between, but yeah. Um, but 2008, yeah, we saw a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, we have a lot of agriculture up here, right? So it wasn't, 
maybe as impactful in Wisconsin as it was in other regions, because at the time you still had, you know, a good amount of agriculture uh, to, to contribute. Now, I think milk prices and corn prices still weren't all that great then either. So I, th- there was a, a mixed bag of, of clients and customers. So it wasn't just a, a straightforward thing. Uh, we did see, you know, from, from the Bobcat standpoint, the purse strings were tightened in the fact that, you know, we were used to traveling all the time and they kind of pulled back on us from like, Hey, just stay home for a little bit, watch your expenses, you know, don't be taking your dealers out for extravagant dinners or anything like that. Uh, you know, make sure that you're being smart and aware. And I think everybody was, was pretty good for the most part on that side. Now, as far as the customer usage side, the beauty of the construction equipment for the most part was that they still needed to use it, right? Even though the housing piece was was really stalled because there was a, there was an oversaturation of, of housing, uh, there still was some building going on, whether it was commercial or, um, you know, some of the landscaping type stuff. There was still some. Shovel-ready uh, projects, de- right? Yeah, it got. was it, it was it definitely had an impact, though. I mean, the sales numbers went down. The service numbers did maintain or, or get higher. Uh, and that's where absorption really became a key factor for, yeah, I, I wouldn't just say Bobcat, but for, uh, for the equipment business in general, you know, where maybe it was kind of there before, but not really in the limelight. It got put in the limelight pretty fast. Mm. Hey, by the way, Jay, do you personally own a Bobcat? I the wish. Little one? I don't. <laughs> I've always wanted that. I, I do not have one, nor do I have the land right now. But that's a, that's definitely a goal uh, to, to uh, be able to get my own someday. I heard the story. Uh, it was Harrison Ford's birthday and I don't know, Paramount Studios or somebody wanted to give him a car for his birthday. And he was like, I have a ton of cars. What I really want is a Bobcat. <laughs> <laughs> so they gave him a Bobcat. He's got a ranch out in Idaho. The clientele for, for the, from Bobcat, you know, we'd have reps, um, and that would have to deal with celebrities. Right. So like, like Brett Favre was a customer and I, I'll never forget one of my buddies had, uh, I can't recall the guy's name, but the guy that played Luke Skywalker, um, oh, in, Mark Hamill. in Canada. Yeah. Mark Hamill. He was a, he was a skid steer owner and had a warranty issue. So he had to go uh, to his place and, work with them. Must have been a referral from Harrison Ford. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My, uh, if, if, well, so my father-in-law, um, so my been, gosh, I don't know how long I've been with my wife, 23 years. So, um, but they're from, my father-in-law's from Chippewa Falls. So know about those small town. Yeah. Chippewa Falls. So, um, they have a hundred year old bus company. Actually now it's over a hundred years, um, out there. And so they've been, uh, wrenching on semi trucks for a long time. Um, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of my Bobcat dealers was actually in Chippewa Falls. I, uh, home of line and Kugels, by the way. Uh, oh, really? How could you yeah. not know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. That's great. That was German. Uh, yeah. Line and Kugel. But he, I think he might own one. He, everybody knows him down there. Well, actually in, in Chippewa, everyone knows everyone. So yes, they do. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure in Wisconsin, everyone knows everyone. It's that just, could uh, be. <laughs> Yeah, we even uh, the sorry the last family trip we did the whole let's go to Duluth and I was so excited to get underwear (laughs) from Duluth and not just see it on a commercial. Did did you know? So that the headquarters for Duluth Trading Company is in the same town that we're in here. So it's a small town, Mount Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. 
uh, and that's where we're located at. So, oh, wow. All right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's funny. The, the people that built our office out here, uh, they actually build out all the retail locations for Duluth. I actually just saw yesterday I was in Duluth and saw Steve Schleck there, who is the founder of Duluth Trading Company. You see him all over town. Oh, well, well, I remember uh, looking out, there was like this mist. I can't remember what time of year. There's like a, like a fog and we were going over a bridge. It almost felt a little eerie. Like we were just floating in the air going over this bridge and we were on the way there. <laughs> Do you know where I'm talking about? If you're coming, were you coming from Chippewa Falls? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, there's a couple spots on the interstate that would feel really, really uh, like that. Yeah. Uh, and if you went the back way kind of through lacrosse, that would even be even crazier. So yeah, no, there's a, there's definitely some areas where uh, you get out in the middle of nowhere on a, on one of those bridges. And if it's, if it's foggy, it does uh, feel a little weird. Yeah. You like, we were just driving into nowhere and my father-in-law, I, I don't think he, if there's a fast way to get somewhere, it, he's going to take the longest possible route. <laughs> It is just the way the way it is. <laughs> like it's all back roads, nothing too crazy. Is this bus company paid by the mile or something? No, no, this is a, he's a back roads kind of guy. Likes yeah. it slow and That's easy, cool. just a nice country drive. So Jay, tell us about. Okay, so you do uh, Bobcat and then John Deere. Yeah. What made you take the leap? Go out on your own. It's a good question. Uh, I, I, it was really, we were having our first, our son, right? And, and I was working a lot of hours driving a lot, uh, between the deer dealerships and, and, you know, I, a lot of it was just not liking to drive home at, you know, five o'clock at night and drive two hours across the state. Uh, and, and, you know, in the middle of winter, it gets dark. And, and so I was working a lot of hours. We were going to have our first child. And I had actually had the idea for Find a Wrench back in like 2004. Uh, I actually bought the domain on GoDaddy in like 2004. Nice. Uh, and, and never did anything about it. You know, I always had the idea and always knew there was an issue. But then I think just the mounting pressure for a shop to find techs kept getting worse and worse and worse. And I did not see anybody out there that was really doing anything about it. And so that was, uh, you know, I had a really nice conversation, uh, com- I had multiple conversations with my wife, obviously we're having a child and, uh, I'm quitting my really good job to start a business. And, uh, I think most people thought I was nuts, but then my wife was like, Hey, you know what? I, I think we can do it. And I think mm. we can pull it off. And, mm. And uh, thankfully, it was probably mostly because of her pushing me over the edge to uh, to do it that yeah. really made it possible. But you know, it, it's not an easy decision. It's you know, you're leaving stability of of having a really good job and a really good paycheck uh, to going to the unknown, and and you know, maybe just losing everything as a result. And it's a it's it's a it's a gut wrenching decision to make. Yeah, for sure. I remember my wife was the same way. She was very supportive. I can't imagine trying to do it without a supportive spouse, like having your income disappear and now you're burning savings. Yeah. I I remember I, um, just reading from my own biography briefly, but you got me thinking about it. I was sitting, um, sitting on a park bench and just, um, talking with a friend and saying, look, because I had kids and still have kids and just thinking I want, there's gotta be a way to like hash out a framework to live where you can make good money, live wherever you want and, and make a difference. You know what I mean? Those were the things that were ma- that mattered to me and they yeah. might be different for somebody else, but 
based on my experience, I'd help, I'd helped a couple of companies grow um, well. And I think at the end of the day, anybody that works even for a commercial repair shop or whatever, like is close enough to a bid to, to the business and maybe manages a budget has seen their skills, which may have gotten better over time, make someone else money. And you, you kind of realize, wait a minute, I can do this. You know, and what would it what would it be like to apply my own skill sets in a business that I own, right? So where mm. I'm making somebody else money and that other person is me. Yeah, if that <laughs> makes sense. Yeah. So anyway, um, I was like, and it's funny. So you had this uh, kind of breakthrough working in your dad's shop as a kid um, where you saw your dad you know, with basically no business experience make it happen. And he's still in business today. And there's, it almost doesn't even matter the scale of the business or maybe even the type of the business. Um, like once you learn that lesson that you can create value um, that someone else is willing to pay for and the end, like yeah. that's a true principle. It's all, it's almost like you have to experience it yourself to get the, the, like the light bulb to turn on, like, wait, this can actually happen. I, I remember um, in the downturn, I had bought a couple of rental properties with my brother-in-law and we thought we had bought at the bottom and we hadn't. <laughs> so it still yeah. went down. Um, and so we found ourselves in this situation with this uh, one house uh, that we rented to ASU students here in Arizona. And we were having to basically put money into it every month just to cover all the expenses and stuff. And um, we, uh, I remember we were at the beach. We always go to the beach uh, in the summer going from Arizona and both heading over to the chase branch to put money in. Once again, we kind of had this breakthrough that, um, the girls had this extra bedroom. It wasn't an extra bedroom. There's an extra room. I, it was like a study or whatever, but they had like shoved a king size mattress into it and they were basically using it as another bedroom. And we just had this breakthrough. We could actually add another bedroom to this house. We were renting it by the bedroom. And anyway, one, one thing leads to another, I think for like six grand we got it redone with another bedroom and another bathroom kind of split the laundry room and suddenly it went from like losing money every month to cash flowing and it was a i mean has nothing to do with what i do right but it's just this lesson yeah wait a minute you can actually do that and uh, so like you can solve problems you can you can fix something that's losing money and turn it into making money and it almost doesn't matter the application so anyway Sorry, yeah. long biography yep. read for me, but yeah. I love it. I, Sounds like you went through a similar experience watching your dad do this, like make it work. You figure out yeah. how to make it work. I, I did. And I think it's it, it's important or it's a piece where I can't, and, and even being exposed to that as a young age, it still is hard, right? Like, that, that, like going out and doing it on your own, uh, I don't think you can I, there's no words to explain how difficult it can be and and really you start to understand the importance of relationships i feel like um and in, and mm. really understanding you know just a good example would be uh, a, the the relationship i had with our banker and we didn't take on outside funding um you know through a bank or through anything else for the first probably two years uh, and it, it probably, when I look back at it, I wish I would have taken on funding earlier because I think it would have, it would have changed some of the stuff or some of the ways that we did, uh, things in the early days of find a wrench, but it, it, you know, having that relationship and if nothing else, just to being able to go and say, oh my goodness, we are getting our butts kicked this month. <laughs> like, yeah. Having, yeah. having that conversation, uh, and, and just knowing that you're not alone because it, 
it it changes. It, it it really does. And and having those conversations with people that have been there is so helpful. And my you know my father in law's a, a huge influence in my life, and and that's a big reason why he's he's the same way. He he started a business and and uh, was very successful with it, and he knew what it was like to to you know, have difficulty making payroll or, you know, doing some of this stuff that you, you take for granted until you're in that seat. Yeah. I I think there's definitely, you know, even just starting, you know, we, those in the early days, that was some of our conversation, right? You're, it it really puts the pressure on when, um, maybe you're not getting, you're not, you're not paying yourself. And in order to pay yourself, you need to be successful. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then once you set this threshold of, I need to pay myself, how does that, you, you find a way, you, you figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. And Jacob, you always say that. It's, yeah. it's that, that, uh, that grit and that belief in what you're doing. Yeah, there's this, uh, the way I did it was um, when, we, when we started Full Bay, I didn't pay myself, but I did. Like I put it as an expense on the PL, even though I didn't actually pay myself. Um, so that we were running in a loss position with that. And there's some phenomenon where you like pay yourself, where you figure out a way to get the top line in to get back into kind of a neutral position. And anyway, we can talk about it. Have you ever read uh, on that note? Have you ever read the book profit first? Uh, no, Chris, you you guys should check it out. It was a, I, I had read, a book, and then I was actually at a conference where the author spoke, and you'll have to forgive me because I don't uh, don't remember the author's name. But he there's a a principle, and it's it's like the Darwin principle, right? It, it, like it's not like Darwin's theory; it's the Dar- Darwin's principle or something like that. And it talks about how he he had created a business where he's taking the profit first, and then figuring out a way to pay the bills afterwards. And there was some psychology behind that. It, that's very similar to what you're talking about. And I just thought it was a fascinating book. Hmm. Uh, if nothing else, just to make you open your, open your mind a little bit. Yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a way to solve these problems. Yeah, for sure. So you didn't take on a funding for the first two years. And so you bootstrapped it basically. Yes. 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 How'd that, how'd that go? Like two years in? I, Super stressful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were, were you right? I, how, how fast did you realize holy cow, I'm right. Or did you have to pivot from, I guess, what the original plan was? So we, when, when I started it, I didn't know if anybody would actually pay for the service. Right. So it's really, you, you hear about it in business classes that you got to find, make sure that there's a product market fit. And I didn't know, I just knew there was a problem. Uh, I didn't necessarily know how to solve that problem. So uh, we, I started it by calling around to my friends, you know, all around the country and saying, hey, I'm starting this thing. I'll do it for you for free. And so for probably the first few months, I was doing it for free for a lot of people and having some success, right? And it really was, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just reaching out to people and calling people and, you know, whatever. If if I had a friend that needed a technician, I would go, you know, help try to find them a technician. So, you know, it, it really was on the premise of when I would hear from a, a, a typical recruiter, uh, on, you know, when I was on the industry side, they were still trying to recruit like they would an executive, but, you know, they, they were really trying to do that, you know, 20, 25, 30% of first year salary to hire a tech. And I remember being in that fixed ops position where I'm like, there's no way I'm paying that. Like, that's just way, way too expensive. Cause your turnover is what? 50% anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's the, actually the the industry number, isn't it? There's a yeah. there's some industry numbers that are right around that, and and so we we started it as a really low dollar uh, 
placement fee, right? So a, a shop wouldn't pay us anything until we found somebody, uh, and then they'd hire that person. We charge them, and it wasn't a it wasn't a lot. It was like a thousand bucks, and it was really just as we're trying to, you know, I, I'm a big believer in you want to add value in order to increase your price, right? Or to to really, you need to over deliver on value, however you can. Um, where we ran into struggles were, and this is where maybe looking back at it, I almost wish I would have either took it on financing or outside investment uh, at that period when I started to understand that there was a, uh, that there truly was a need. This was not going away. This was really, really needed. Uh, we ended up growing incredibly fast. Uh, and and it's one of those things where as a young business owner, you don't want to admit that you're too small, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Like if you don't want to say, Hey, you know what, we're not big enough to be able to handle some of these big accounts. So Mm. I was going after some of these big, big companies and we were getting some of them and, and we were, we were taking them on. And as a result, our customer service kind of stunk for a while. And it was just because we were so overloaded with work that we couldn't possibly keep up. And we, it's funny because looking back, we, one, we weren't charging enough to be able to, to pay all the bills and then <clears throat> give us, give ourselves enough time to be able to do that. And so that's really where the evolution of our business came from was, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of looking at what, what shops really wanted, what techs wanted and understanding that maybe every shop didn't need the full recruiting service, but they needed help getting their jobs posted in a bunch of different places and just getting exposure to their job. And that's really where our business shifted. And, and today I would say we're as much of a marketing company as we are a recruiting company and, and helping them, uh, when I say them, shop owners and managers uh, get their jobs out in front of people. So that was uh, an evolution because of uh, maybe some difficulties or some things we learned along the way. What you know, Jay? What are some of the <clears throat> key success metrics that you look for? I saw an article you wrote about a shop reaching thirty-five percent business growth from staffing, just just getting staffed. They had the business, yeah. they just weren't. So I imagine there's some key indicators that you look for that you measure, maybe pre and post. What are like the top three that you look for? So if you were to look at just the staffing side in general, right? And we internally to Fine Wrench have different KPIs than what maybe a shop would have as a result. Uh, we do look at hires, but as much as anything, we want to see how many people are applying, right? And and uh, when we see how many people are applying, that's so important because I think, again, going back to the paradigm shift of, of a shop, not every applicant's going to be perfect or what you're looking for. So you need to draw more in so that you can be a little pickier and you need to do that when you're not, you know, with your back against the wall, needing somebody tomorrow to work on that piece of equipment or that truck or whatever it might be. And, and so the applications are a big one uh, per, uh, per shop. Um, and for us internally, we want to make sure that every shop is getting exposure and that they're getting, you know, applicants. So uh, Lisa, who's our director of, mar- uh, director of recruiting, excuse me, she's very, very involved with those type of KPIs. So uh, it's, it's the applications, the traffic that we're seeing um, and, and really to talk to what you're saying on the monetary side and the the uh, say like that 35% increase, that really just comes down to simple math, right? And and if you've got an empty bay, and whatever your labor rate is, and if, if there's a if you've got the work coming in and there's nobody working in that bay, the opportunity that you're losing on is 
huge, right? And and I say it a lot, but we sell labor when it comes down to it. As a shop, we sell labor. And if you don't have labor to sell, that's not a very good recipe for success in a shop, right? Yeah, yeah. And well, and I was your question. Yeah, yeah, and I well, and I also started to wonder if, you know, cuz there's um, you know, when, when I had a I'm, question about that too when you're Yeah, when you're, I was gonna, yeah. you know, cuz we we're often going through so some some shop owners might even be living with um, a scenario where they're afraid to have an empty bay, so they're only they're, they're paying somebody 40 hours and only billing 50 50 hours or 50% of that. So they pay I pay Jacob 40 hours of clock time and I only get to invoice 20 hours, but if I, I'm so it's better than of, an empty bay, right? It's better than an empty bay, and and I was wondering if that was also just tech efficiency, how that plays into it, so that you know it's one thing to have bays full, but it's another thing to have every tech hitting at a hundred percent of standard, which is is kind of the standard, right? You. Yeah, you pay me forty, I invoice forty, <laughs> right? Or- that's the goal. Yeah, and that that's the way. Yeah, I, I always say it. Like, there's there's a couple different problems here, right? And and the technician and having them in their bay is one problem. If you don't have the work to sell, you can't sell it. But if say they don't have the work coming in the door, to me, that's more of a management or marketing problem than it is an actual mm-hmm. technician problem, right? Yeah. And so if you're able to identify that like, Hey, Jimmy's out there, but we're only keeping him busy half the time. That's not the technician's fault. That's, that's, you know, that's on the front office. You've got to do something different to try and get more work in, or maybe look at better inspections to, to drive more work or, you know, something along those lines. Uh, and, and I think identifying that as a shop manager that, Hey, this isn't the technician's fault that his bay is empty. Uh, it's, it's my fault. I need to get work in there for him uh, or her. That that's a big deal. But what about a technician, um, to take Chris's example, you've got a technician taking up a bay who's only billing 20 hours a week, but you don't have a technician to backfill them. This is a, it's kind of a similar scenario when I was working in a shop and I disagreed with the owner over this. He decided to fire the technician because he was taking up the bay, but he didn't have anybody to backfill. Isn't it better? I mean, this is kind of rhetorical, right? But isn't it better to have somebody turning the wrenches in the bay than nobody turning the wrenches in the bay? As long as on the margin, they are making you money. Maybe they're not the most efficient, but at least they're bringing in money that helps cover fixed costs and does have some kind of margin contribution. What What do you think? I will say yes to no. And the reason I would say that I, in every scenario is unique, right? But say if that one technician that's only producing half the time has the work, but just isn't a producer, um, but might be either younger or still learning, like I would maybe be a little bit more patient with that kind of person. But if it's a person that is upsetting the culture and doesn't get along with people is fighting with people and is different to me that's that's an easy decision right like that that person's best fit isn't with you uh and that needs to that needs to be taken care of sooner rather than later so i think you know i know those are two different hypothetical situations but i see it all the time where you know a shop will hold on to a person for too long because they worry about having an empty bay uh, and it really upsets the apple cart. But then I've also seen it where they let go of somebody that's not producing, say, you know, taking it back to what we talked about with younger technicians before, where their expectations are through the roof, yet this person is still learning and they get rid of them, even though they're a good, you know, they're good fit. They, you know, they listen, they're trying to learn. 
Um, you know, it, it really, a lot of times it goes back to the temperament of the manager or the owner, right? Like if, if they're, if they're patient, they're probably going to do it a little differently than if they're not patient. Yeah. You, you know, um, and so I imagine you're, you're, as you're staffing and helping your coaching shops, how are they, you know, displaying tech metric, uh, technician sharing their metrics with them? Or did, do you often find that everybody has it sorted out? Like they have the weekly meeting, someone's manually calculating it, or there's a way that they see tech efficiency or, cause it, it seems like it's very, um, depending on the customers we see, they, they generally don't have a mechanism. It's, no, it's, that's why, that's why I love what you guys are doing. Right. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I still think in, in, uh, we, this came up in the, 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 um, the, uh, the conference that we did, I'm sorry, called tech mission that the industry is still fairly antiquated, right? That we're still very, very behind as an industry. And those are some of the things that really put us behind. And uh, obviously there's varied levels based on the shop themselves and, and how big they are, how progressive they are, you know, all of that stuff, what their comfort level is. It, it really does vary across the board. Now I will say if you, you know, Somebody on our automotive side of tech mission said, you know, we're 25 years behind. And if you're only 20 years behind, you're actually ahead of the rest of the industry. <laughs> so <laughs> right. it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's something that I think is really true, right? Like if, and that's something, you know, with full bay, that that's something you give a shop and a shot at is getting more up to date and getting better. And that's, you know, like I said, that's what I love about you guys is that you're, you're doing some pretty incredible things in that regard. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thanks for the kind words. So if I, if I've got, even if I have the metrics though, so, uh, I, I promise I'll move on from this, but this was a real world scenario. I loved the guy, really nice guy. He was billing probably 50% efficiency. And we knew it because we were piloting full bay in the shop. Good guy, didn't upset the culture. It was taken at the bay, knowing to backfill. What what's the call that you make? No cult, like culturally, culturally, he's either a neutral or positive contributor. Whatever. What call do you make if there's no one to backfill? So this is the way I used to do it, right? Is I would rank my technicians uh, based on green, yellow, and red. And so if they were good producers and had a bright future of growth, they would go in the green bucket. If they were a good producer, but maybe not a good attitude, they'd go in the yellow bucket. And if they were a bad attitude, bad producer, they'd go in the red bucket. And so I would make decisions based off of that. Um, mm. And if they're in the red, that's a problem. Uh, but if they're, you know, somebody that's younger, or even if it's somebody, you know, there's still a lot of, you know, almost retired individuals yeah, this is, that this is probably middle-aged guy very calm yeah. very very methodical in how he did stuff if he put out good quality i probably hold on to him and unless you found somebody else and then you make the decision yeah and that's where that proactive you know we preach it all the time but i think it's so so important is i think what happens with a lot of shops is they'll say okay you know, Jimmy is producing 50% and it's using the example that you have, they would then sit on their hands for the next three years and just ride it out, even though they're in the back of their minds a little bit frustrated about it, but they're not going to, they're not frustrated enough to do anything about it. So to me, if you're able to, you've got a producer there and you can start working toward getting more people to apply because frankly, you, you, you said the turnover number earlier, 
there's a chance that maybe somebody else leaves besides that person. And then you're really stuck out in the woods. So how, how do you, how do you put something in play or in process to where you're generating applicants on a, on a regular basis? Because that's where that will help you out. And there's also a way to expand your base by adding another shift, yeah. getting another service truck. So not, not all the repairs have to happen right there inside the shop and so forth. It well, gives you more flexibility. It goes right back to your apartment analogy, right? Or your, your house analogy yeah. that you ended up adding another room, right. which added another revenue source. So that's something that can drive you to think differently. Yeah, yeah. true. Good point. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, just to um, add something to that, uh, Jacob, we we would have that, right? So we we had our own shop as well. So we were doing our private fleet, plus we had our own shop, several garages. And sometimes that person was really great at complex electrical items or was great at DOT inspections and was certified to do them. Well, then just put them in that box, right? Like have them produce and perform as many of those repeatable standard jobs as possible. Mm -hmm. For us, it wasn't revenue based, but we just we you there's tasks in the shop that uh, you can get more velocity out of them. Uh, or if they're experts in a certain area, electrical uh, can be gremlins, right? So those mm -hmm. just aren't the best at. <laughs> I'd add something there too, and this is something that I, you know, I had lunch with my my dad uh, a week ago. I was helping him out with a project down at his shop, and we went to go grab lunch. and And he said, "Hey, you know, I saw you put the question out. We have this Wrenchway Insiders thing." He said, "I saw that you put a question out on technicians or mechanics. So, like, what do people want to be called?" And he That's said, a great I've, question, I've got, by the way. We were just talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's like, I've, I've got a different a different opinion on it. And it was something that I hadn't heard him say before, which is he said, I think there's still technicians and mechanics. And he's like, I don't think everybody quite grasps that, but there's still mechanics that are very good on the mechanical side. There's technicians that are great at diagnostics, but maybe not great at the mechanical side. And he's like, for me in my shop, I think it's important to have both uh, somebody that's good on the diagnostic side, somebody that's good on the mechanical side. And there are times where you'll get that one person that can do everything, but a lot of times it's one or the other. Mm. And that kind of landed home with me. I didn't think of it that way. And, uh, and I think he's completely right. Like that it's just trying to, you know, trying to get the right people on the bus and getting them in the right seats. Right. I think your dad yeah. talked to my father and something's <laughs> going on here. What is happening right now? Cause that's the earful I just got. It's a Wisconsin thing. I think. What about a mechanical technician? And like, uh, just no, no, but yeah, he's right. There's the, so, so there was, there was, so we've onboarded a lot and some people are like, I have mechanics. Like they are just flat out. I have mechanics. Yes. And we call them technicians. Right, right. Right. So yeah. we just changed the name, but there's yeah. a point there that the, uh, a lot of folks, you know, diagnostic work, electricians, they'll usually mm -hmm. call them techs. Yeah. And then if you are doing, you know, you're doing a top end, you're doing clutches, stuff that's just like what we would call can jobs or glo global services. Those are mechanics. Mm. Yeah. Skill set based. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that, PMs. Yeah. It's a tough part, though, is it feels like none of our industry is on the same page with that, right? Like it, you've got some of the it's it's like politics. Some of them are like dead set on one side. Some of them are dead set on the other. Some don't care. And it really is at some level frustrating because I feel like we've lost a little bit of our identity, you know, when. You know, I'm all for uh, the technician name. That's what schools preach. That's what we preach. But there's also times where I'm like, are we doing this the right way? Because if I'm talking to somebody from outside the industry, somebody that's not involved with day to days like we are, 
And and I, if I'm if I'm a tech and I go to my my friend and I say they say what do you do and the person says well I'm a technician they're going to ask a follow up question like what do you mean like there's all kinds of different <laughs> technicians <laughs> whereas like if you say I'm a mechanic they probably or people know what it means say, I'm a diesel mechanic yeah you you know what they mean and that's where to me I think there's some level right, Jay, of like I mean if we get we, a few more people together let's all decide what the terms are I think we can I think we can probably set the standard <laughs> I will say yeah. this there's not and one can't be less than I will say this I've seen some guys rebuild some gearboxes you do not want the electrician in your gearbox yeah mechanic right. is not less than technician <laughs> no right, no exactly. there's some really highly qualified uh, folks and then the tricks right like my father-in-law with his matchbook you can get your feeler gauge you'll never get the right one I mean I'm sure everyone will be like yes it's this 1.0 whatever right but um but anyway you know there's there's definitely i don't think they're less than let's get together jay let's hash it out i love it i love it guys that's i'm all about it so jay um i we're kind of coming to the end of our time it's really flown by i really appreciate you uh taking the time so you guys have figured it out and find a wrench people are actually paying you for this now right yeah, you're actually you've actually done something people will pay you for. Um, and I imagine you guys have figured out how to service the, the big accounts, too. Yeah, uh, it, and it really has taken a lot of learning, uh, I think, in any any business, business in, a, in a startup in particular, that there's a little bit of that feeling it out. Right. And trying to to, you know, you, you still have bills to pay. You still have people to pay. And you're trying to kind of put the put the wheels on as you're driving down the road, so to speak. And um, we're to the point now where I think I'm as confident as I've ever been in what we've got for our product. Uh, we just launched Wrenchway, uh, the platform that I think could change a lot of things, right? And and we like to say it's kind of like a resume for a shop. And we felt like that was important because a shop really does need to stand out to these techs. It can't just be the old put the put the ad in the paper and get noticed or even put an ad in a job board. We have our own job board and it gets really, really overwhelming for a tech when they search in a city and there's 200 different diesel jobs for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we needed a way to stick out. And that's what that's what we've done with Wrenchway. It's it's a it's really a way of a, a shop's way of being transparent and kind of similar to what a tech has to do when they apply at a shop. It's a it's a shop's resume. So they they uh, they can kind of sell themselves to a technician on why somebody should work there and, and maybe why they'd be a fit there. Makes sense. That's awesome. Nice. Any other last words that you want to say to, you know, to somebody running a shop or facing some of these issues that we talked about? Yeah, I, I, it's the industry's changing so fast. Right. And I think it's not just our industry, it's every industry, but with technology, things are changing so quickly. And I think for an owner or a manager to really understand that you need to be be working on your business on purpose, right? And and not just putting out fires, but putting together actual plans and, and those KPIs that we talked about before, right? What is important to you that's going to generate uh, money for your business so that you can pay a tech what they're worth or you can buy the tools that you need or send them to the training they need? Uh, you know, really, uh, to me, the core foundation of having a good shop culture, having a good business culture in general is, is to produce profit. And that's to be able to do some of the things and grow. Uh, and that's so important. And I think a lot of people in our industry get stuck on the day to day side and putting out fires 
that they don't get to be proactive on some of this stuff like hiring or like training or like technology and and it makes their life difficult. So uh, to me, it's it's more of, of really that working on your business rather than in your business. Uh, I always think there's probably a little bit of both, but the more that you can be proactive with planning your business and, and really getting a hold of the, the key elements of what make your business roll, uh, your life's going to be a heck of a lot easier. Yeah. And, you know, I, I definitely agree with the model that you have uh, just personally from going through a lot of applications and hiring and interviewing. You can get if you're not good at it, you'll make a bunch of mistakes and um, you're paying for it anyway, especially if, if, if you're trying to, to your point, are you working in the business or on it? I love the way you frame it. Um, you're uh, there's professionals like yourself out there that this is what you do. And um, at the end of the day, it's just cheaper to let a professional find you another professional because my mistakes and all of the time I'm spent sifting and sorting through applications and doing the interviews, I could be making the business more money or working on the next great, the sixth bay or the fourth bedroom, whatever it is. And my last question. um, So we, we know we are missing technicians or mechanics from the industry right? There's a major technician shortage. Um, they aren't missing from the planet though. The people that otherwise would be these technicians are, they're people that are good with their hands they're mechanically minded, but they're sitting in totally unrelated jobs and totally unrelated industries. And they're probably miserable. And that's kind of the situation we've created with, um, uh, not that we don't want people to get a higher education, but is, is it always going to a university to get a degree in humanities or something like that? Um, it can be okay to go to a UTI or to a tech, another technical college. So um, I guess my parting question for you would be this. What would you say to a young man or young woman who is mechanically minded, but who's kind of had their brain wired to go straight to college and get a degree in humanities or 18th century French literature or something like that, even though that's not what they're truly gifted at, what would you say to that person to get them to flip that switch in their brain and, 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 and see where, what kind of potential they could have in this industry? It's funny because I've got a lot of friends that fall, that have fallen in that bucket, right? That have gone for engineering or have gone, you know, to a four-year school because it was what was just embedded in them from a very, very young age. And they get out, they have the college debt, they hate their job and they hate their profession and they end up being a tech or they end up, you know, in, in some cases, one of my best friends is an electrician and he started, he, he went to a four-year school and uh, he actually dropped out, but he's like, I had good grades. I had, you know, everything to, to do what I needed. It just, I did not like it. And I knew I wasn't going to like standing behind a desk or sitting behind a desk. I, I work with my hands and I really enjoyed it. And now he's making a heck of a good living as an electrician, you know, like there's, there are so many opportunities out there and there's some level of parental stigma we have to get around with our industry, right? Like there's, there's still a lot of fight back on, uh, you know, from the parents as much as anybody that why, you know, why would you go into an industry that you can beat your body up and, and, you know, it go through all of this tough stuff. But what they're not noticing is all of the technological advances, how, how different the industry is getting, all of the additional tools and, and even down to 
the culture shift from, you know, the, the person that wanted to lift that 400 pound piece by themselves uh, and end up taking out their back and suffering for, for it for the rest of their life. Now it's not so much of that as much as like, okay, I'm going to go get a crane and, and get this off the, off the floor, whatever. Uh, so it's just working smarter. Uh, to me, talking to a young person, and, I, and I, I'm lucky enough to be able to talk to a lot of young people and I talk to them about ROI, right? And and really going into an industry that's needed. And I think if nothing else, this p- pandemic really shed a light on how important technicians are, right? There were a lot of white collar people that were laid off throughout the pandemic and, and still are to this day. I don't know that we're through everything, uh, you know, financial aspect of it uh, yet or the business aspect of how, how much of an impact there's going to be. But even the biggest places in the world were not letting go of technicians mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. were so valuable to their business. Right. Uh, and that's where I, th- I think you see that uh, essential worker designation. It's really true that we, we need them desperately. Yeah. You know, uh, just uh, uh, echoing what you're saying, my uncle, I always aspired to be like my uncle. He did his degree, went uh, to the military, served our country, did his degree, went to work for IBM for 20 years, and he had the house I always wanted. And so, he, you know, it riddled with debt and all the issues that you said. And at the age of 21, staying in blue collar, I had my first house. And uh, we we compare stories along the way. I was able to keep up with them in my own way. And uh, I didn't go through that same path. But and we're at the same point in our lives that, uh, you know, he he went one path. I'm going another and we're meeting at the same place. Um, So there is a way that you don't have to follow that to get your first house. I did it on full blue collars blue collar salary at 21 just be well, responsible <laughs> i think that's i think that's smart too though that in the the biggest thing that and even going back to like a guidance counselor right a high school guidance counselor telling them that there's more than one way to be successful is so important and like i'll never downplay it. my brother's a financial advisor went to the university of wisconsin very very smart guy i will never downplay the importance of his education and what he did and the accomplishments there are but we're both successful in different in different regards right and we have a lot in common yet we're exactly the opposite so it, it is like there's more than one way to skin a cat right <laughs> there's <laughs> there's there, there are a lot of different ways that you can be successful and if if you truly like to work with your hands and like to do critical thinking and, and think through problems and solve problems uh, being a technician can be one heck of a good career yeah and just like jay uh, like you self-admit that you didn't have the raw talent to be a technician there you, your talents lie elsewhere there are are people out there whose raw talents are to be a technician and they they're not doing it and they'd be so much happier and and you're right with the right tools and so forth it becomes more you know more and more with you when you see some of the cool stuff we have an article coming out about this um when you see some of the cool stuff with the future of trucking will diesel go away to some extent, um, we've been talking to some, some industry insiders and, you know, it looks like um, there's good potential for um, diesel electric hybrid, but uh, different kinds of engine builds potentially built on, uh, what was it, acrylic or uh, ceramic. ceramic? Yeah, you know, um, it's going to be totally different. It's almost becoming more, you know, SpaceX, less grease monkey, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, yeah. It, and 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 it's it, I, I think it's gonna I think it's gonna come back to a good balance, but we all ha- have to kind of help get it there. 
help yeah, uh, push the message. It's no different. It's adapting just like any anything else, right? And I, you know, always go back to the Henry Ford quote of if we would ask people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And I, <laughs> I, I, I think that's yeah. always such a uh, an important thing to to think about. Is yes, our our industry is going to change. So is every other industry that's out there. You're still going to need knowledge to be able to to repair these things. They're not going to self repair. Um, it's it's uh, it's it might be a different set of skills or an evolution of skills, but uh, that that skill is always going to be needed. All right, Jay Goninen, founder of Find a Wrench, host of the Wrench Wrenchways podcast. Yes, thank is that you. Correct. Yeah, and uh, and tell us about the new tool you guys just released. What was the name of it? Wrenchway. Uh, so, and Wrenchway is the the kind of the the customer facing website. That's where shops can really get their their shop resume, if you will, out there, and and a host of other things. We're actually doing some pretty cool promos between Find Wrench and Wrenchway right now. Uh, but the Wrenchway Insiders app is a a great way for industry people, specifically technicians, to go out and help us gather data, right? Get get some information on what they want to see out of the industry, what we can do to make their daily lives better, and as a result, uh, win some cool prizes. So, uh, yeah, that's a, a lot of things, a lot of irons in the fire, but uh, hopefully they're, uh, they're helping drive the industry to, uh, to progress. Awesome. And I got it wrong. It's Beyond the Wrench podcast. Oh, sorry. Beyond, about that. Yes, beyond yes. the wrench podcast. <laughs> All right, Jay, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you guys. Love what you're doing. Appreciate it. Yep, thanks, thanks, Jay. Jay. Thanks for listening to this episode of Diesel Stories podcast. Be sure to subscribe and check out dieselstories.com for more episodes.